Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today, I have another special guest for you who I had the opportunity to interview earlier today. I had a great conversation with Mr. Nate Douglas. Nate is uh, one of the deacons here at All Saints Presbyterian Church, and he and I picked up a podcast episode that I'd put out oh, a few weeks ago now on the subject of education. Specifically, uh, you may recall if you're a regular listener to this podcast or a regular viewer of the videos that accompany it, that I highlighted some potential pitfalls that may be found in, well, I highlighted specifically the classical Christian education tradition, although the pitfalls could be found elsewhere. It's just that I've encountered them once or twice, particularly potently in relation to that tradition. And therefore, though that educational approach is one that I'm an enthusiastic advocate of, and indeed my wife Nicole and I chose to uh, select that kind of educational framework for our children, I wanted to raise one or two potential uh, dangers that it might have. I'm not going to go into the details because I do that at the start of the interview. But the conversation I had with Nate arose from just an email exchange he and I had and then a sub subsequent conversation in which he wanted to say, well, hold on a second, uh, there's probably some more uh, different perspectives on this question that would be helpful to hear. And so we talked and I listened and I thought, actually, yeah, there's some very interesting and helpful things that we could think about there, particularly connected with the overarching aims of not just classical Christian education, but all education, namely the formation of Christian character and how that feeds into the important matter of vocation, that, which is to say what people end up spending most of the rest of their lives doing once they've finished their formal education as young people. And then there were also some other conversations we had about uh, the uh, different priorities at different stages of a young person's growth and how what they do in their teenage years and what they do as young adults 18 through 21 and beyond how those things might uh, differ and vary depending on their particular aptitude and abilities and skills and so on anyway there's a whole bunch of stuff which just go, goes to show how deep this rabbit hole goes and how worthwhile I think it is for us to be constantly thinking about this it's a particular pressing priority for people who themselves are young people or for you if you're a parent and you're educating your own children, and if you're a prospective future parent, and who knows how many of you might be in that category, even if you're not a parent right now. The Lord may bless you in future with marriage, if you're not married and with children, if you don't ha yet have children. And I hope, therefore, that this issue of education is something which is a priority for everybody to be reflecting on. Uh, so I, I don't want to say much more by way of introduction. I'm going to hand you over to the interview recording that um, Nate and I made earlier. I want to thank him for his participation and for raising the questions. I think it was really helpful. I think in the end, we certainly didn't end up disagreeing at all, but there were some additional elements to the picture which it was very helpful to put in place and to flesh out. And I think particularly as education relates to virtue and godliness and how godliness and virtue relate to uh, our callings in life, professional callings as well as family callings and how the the issue of the quality of our education uh, factors into all those discussions there's a whole bunch of practical stuff there which i won't preempt any further other than to say i hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast and god bless bye for now well hello everybody and welcome to the all saints podcast i'm here with nate douglas who is one of the Deacons here at All Saints. Welcome, Nate. Great to have you with us. Glad to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> well, listen, it's great to have you here. Um, this conversation arose because of a podcast that came out a few weeks ago in which I address the subject of classical Christian education. 
And I made some comments there about some potential pitfalls for this approach to uh, teaching and uh, raising young people. And you had some comments about that, some more um, uh, perspectives you wanted to bring. And I thought it'd be great just to have a conversation and allow others to listen in, so to speak, because I think the points you made were really good points. I think it'd be helpful for other people to hear them. So if it's okay, I'll just begin by recapping what I said a few weeks ago, and then I'll ask you just to jump in, Nate, and, and talk me through how you think uh, you'd want to nuance or add to, uh, or, or even if you think, think, think I've got something wrong, you know, push back against what I said. But here's what I um, had to say just a couple of weeks ago. Briefly, uh, first, what is classical Christian education? Well, roughly speaking, I think it can be defined by at least two characteristics. The first is a methodology, which I'd talked about before. Dorothy Sayers talked about grammar, logic, rhetoric, by which she meant something like teach the facts of a subject in the early years, then in the middle years, teach how a subject fits together, how the facts of a subject fit together, the, the logical relationships between ideas. And then as uh, the end of high school approaches, you're moving towards rhetoric, the stage at which you're asking young people to be creative in articulating the ideas that they've learned. And then in a subsequent podcast, again quite recently, I talked with um, Josh Taylor at Grace Classical, Great Grace Classical Christian Academy in Granbury, and uh, I suggested that actually what Miss Sayers has found back in the mid-20th century is a reflection of a biblical paradigm, priest-king-prophet, where priest-king-prophet roughly follows grammar, logic, rhetoric. Okay, so the first feature of classical Christian education is that it is uh, it has that kind of pedagogical structure. The second is a particular kind of content, and I wanted to highlight a... a, a a focus on uh, ancient literature, uh, the things that have arisen from the long history of Western civilization as it's been shaped by the scriptures. So in a sense, when it comes to content, scripture is at the heart of, the root of what is explored in classical Christian education. But it also, you'd expect uh, people who are following that educational paradigm be, to be self-consciously looking for the beauty and the goodness of God's creative and providential work in the great works of literature and art and architecture and so on and so forth throughout um, the history of Western civilization, And all that is focused then on glorifying God for the things that he has made. And, and so that's, roughly speaking, at least the two characteristics of classical Christian education that I drew attention to. Now, I know you want to add something to that, but, but um, the... the 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 danger that I wanted to draw attention to was so commending that as to be in effect or even explicitly derogatory towards vocational training. So it's a real pity, it seems to me, when you have people who are involved in classical Christian education uh, speaking in a way which is negative of someone who trains to be a plumber or some who, someone who trains to be an accountant or somebody who leaves school at 17 or 18 and goes off to do a degree in engineering or pre-med or something because what they want to be is an engineer or a doctor or an accountant or a plumber or a salesman or something. 
The, and the reason I think that's a mistake is, firstly, it's theological, um, because as the reformers rediscovered, Scripture places a very high value on the vocational callings that men and women have, whether as mums and dads, husbands and wives, and in a workplace. Um, a man who works in a steel warehouse, um, the guy who comes into this building to spray the gunk in the corners of the room to kill the cockroaches, uh, somebody who designs a bridge or fills in your tax return for you, all these things are dignified callings in the sight of God. And I think it's a crying shame when somebody says, in the pursuit of commending study of ancient literature, is it implicitly or explicitly derogatory or critical of the vocational tradition that we have to we've inherited really from the our reformed forebears and and I want to encourage people to pursue and there's a, a deep-seated practical eschatological concern as well which is it is a it is a vital aspect of being ready to be a great husband and father and mother and wife to be able to provide now, if you can't get a job you're probably not going to be able to get married and raise your children well and provide for them the kind of education that you want to have to provide for them so that's the the concern I had my, my fear just to encapsulate it try and encapsulate it in one sentence then Nate you're sitting very patiently listening <laughs> um, I think it would be a wonderful thing to commend classical Christian education as one potential Christian educational path the one that Nicole my wife and I in various ways, trying to pursue with our children. A great thing to commend that, but a terrible mistake to commend it at the expense of commending vocational training for those reasons. So that's a summary of my bleats from a few weeks ago. Nate, you had some thoughts about that, and I'd love to hear them. Sure. So among those bleats, you, to be clear, you wanted a world where you'd had both and, mm -hmm. right? So it's very important that you have both of those components. And I 100% agree with you um, with all of those statements that you just made. I think some additional layers could be added to fine-tune and even hone in and make your argument more pointed. So I'm glad we're getting in a chat now. Yeah. Uh, with the classical education, you summarized well, I think a kind of a 30,000-foot view mm -hmm. of methodology, content, I think it would be helpful to unpack and bring greater clarity to the function and purpose of the methodology and content. Right. Right. So the whole purpose of classical education is to help students to grow in wisdom, discernment, and inculcate virtue. And you can do those things with um, feeding their souls with good things. And by good things, obviously, Scripture needs to be at the center of it. If Scripture is not at the center of any right. so-called classical um, education, it's not. Uh, it's certainly not a Christian one, but I would argue it's not a uh, classical one either. Right. In um, one sense, then, so you said this earlier when we were talking before this, but the Bible is the preeminent classical text. Indeed. In that it's, it's the root of all that is good in the Western classical tradition, as well as every other tradition. Right? Exactly. And so uh, it's very important that that be at the center of it. And it's not, right. I would say, Christian or classical if that was not the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a lot of other great works of uh, literature, art, music, and so forth that 
Um, as you mentioned in the previous podcast episode, certainly help Christians gain a greater appreciation of God and his creation, right. what is good, what is beautiful. But I think what is really important in the purpose of this kind of education is that they are soul changing and soul shaping right. that's right. going on. So when you listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or if you read Augustine's Confessions, mm-hmm. you should be a different man or woman after right. you've listened or read um, those things or seen a particular painting. Right. Um, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be different because just like we do in uh, everyday, uh, like we do at Sunday worship, for example, yeah, yeah, the Lord's table changes us. Right, yes. But obviously, as a sacrament, it's supposed to have that function, but even just the acts of singing together with right. other people, yes. singing yes. God's word, psalms, the act of confession, listening to God's mm-hmm. word being preached, those yeah. are all soul-changing and feeding yeah. too. And so in the same way, classical education is functioning where when you are feeding good things to your students, you right. are shaping them to be better husbands, it's about fathers. It's yes. about it's all well, about so let me make a couple of comments about that. I mean, the first is I accept the point. In mm-hmm. other words... I think definitionally, absolutely, I would accept that third strand to the definition of what classical Christian education is trying to accomplish. And that actually highlights a second point, which is that much of what we're saying here bleeds into other Christian educational approaches. Sometimes we we can talk about classical Christian education or some other kind of Christian education, as though they exist in hermetically sealed boxes. Right? Yes, right. But, but it's kind of, I mean, that's a mistake. But clearly, any thought-through approach to Christian education is trying to form a certain sort of person. It's about character. And even yes. non-Christian educational paradigms are trying to create a certain sort of person, mm-hmm. just not the right sort of person, ultimately. Right. And so I, I think it's interesting, because that also highlights that, you know, As um, other aspects of the description, perhaps it's a better thing to call it a description than a definition, description of classical Christian education that I offered would be found in other paradigms as well. I think that's the point I made. So, you know, somebody who's not self-consciously following Dorothy Sayers' grammologic rhetoric or the biblical priest, king, prophet, might well teach their kid a bunch of facts when they're young and then help them to sort them out and figure out how they go together when they're 10 or 11 and then teach them to write well when they're 14 or 15. I mean, that, Or they might teach them Latin, which are obviously is a, a key component of the, the content of this. So I guess the point I'm making is, thus far, like, total agreement. Very glad to hear you say that. Yes. Um, talk to me about how you see that virtue point interacting with the vocational point that I was wanting to make previously. Right. And that's why I wanted to bring that up because, again, if we can lay down the proper foundation for how we're defining classical education and the purpose of Mm -hmm. it, then we can better inform your argument about the vocational um, component. So, obviously, the whole purpose of classical education is to inculcate uh, virtue in our children Mm -hmm. and in our students then they in turn can turn that and take that into their vocational training later. Right, right. So a lesson that we, in conversation I had with one of my children just recently was about trustworthiness and responsibility. Right, right, right. Um, if those lessons aren't being taught now, 
he's not going to be given responsible positions at his workplace right, right, right. Yeah. down the road. And subsequently, the people that um, are not trustworthy with, uh, ca- people that cannot be trusted with mm. important roles or tasks don't make as much money if they even can keep their right. job at yeah. all. So, so being, being a virtuous person, being a godly person, so, I, mean, I, I recognize the term virtue we sometimes think of as, as a term that's connected with the classical tradition. It's actually a yes. biblical term. Certainly. It's, it's, it's just right there in the New Testament. Yes. Um, uh, it's in First Peter 1. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so the, the point you'd be making is like, you, you're not going to be a good plumber if you're not honest. You're yes. not going to be a good airline pilot if you're not careful, cautious, right. conscientious, mm-hmm. uh, loving. Um, you're not going to be a good um, accountant um, if you've not got that kind of scrupulous attention to detail. You're not going to be a good engineer if you've not worked really hard to make sure you understand what it is that you're building that people are driving 10,000 cars a day across. So, so to push your point further, perhaps you'd want to say, I'm putting words in your mouth now, but um, if we really believe in vocational education, mm-hmm. we must find some way of getting that the outcome in terms of Christian virtues and godliness that is the whole goal of the classical Christian approach to education. Would that be right? Exactly. And that's what I want for my children, right, the right, whole right. purpose of this, so yeah. that they have the proper tools to handle any vocation mm-hmm. that they decide to pursue, as well as be, um, it, this goes outside the scope of a, a little bit, but be good husbands, fathers, right, right. church members, yes. community members. Yes, Those are all equally as important it's great to be obviously at, at your job but if you're a mm-hmm. crummy husband when you get home or yes. father it, there's issues there too right. so in one sense I, I think this is really encouraging because what it says to all of us who are parents and actually all those who are, are children studying whatever self-conscious approach to education you're taking if it's christian it is aimed at the formation of character yes a classical christian well, let, well, maybe we'll come to that in a second. Why does the classical Christian education tradition think that this is a particular way to get to character? But we, right. we all want to get to character. And that is in no way a divergent priority from vocational training. It's like uh, you, soldiers should not be trained to have either a right leg or a left leg, you know, or recruited with a... We need both legs. Yes. We need plumbers to be great at plumbing and honest, scrupulously hardworking, conscientious people. Mm-hmm. And so the virtue is an aspect of the vocational training. Right. Now, just behind this, and this is a slight side tangent, but I think it might be helpful. Um, do you want to say anything about why the classical Christian education tradition sees this particular path to forming Christian virtue as particularly fruitful because to put it most crudely like somebody who says well we're not giving our kids a classical education but we're definitely trying to form virtue what would a classical bit Mm -hmm. add right to that so definitely want to put the classic um, into classical with this (laughs) argument right right. where uh, the whole purpose of studying classical is in you can focus on works of art, literature, mm-hmm. history, yeah. um, music, where 
these things are relevant today and they've lasted today because they are good in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So they've stood this test of time mm-hmm. and you could at a basic level say because they've stood the test of time, they're in a sense good and viable right, uh, for right. us to utilize because in many cases they're 2,000, 1,500, 1,000 years old. Right. The filter of history has been applied and has weeded out garbage. Indeed. Right. So we can still listen to Bach and be right. in awe yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if we were to li- listen to Billie Eilish 20 years from now, yeah, we'd... <laughs> she's even relevant at all. Yeah. I've often thought this about, about Christian music, by the way. It's kind of yes. parenthetic. It's, maybe it's illustrative. So sometimes um, people might ask, you know, why is it that we act as though the only decent Christian music that has ever been written was written hundreds of years ago? Because there's loads of Christian music being written today. Right. And, and my answer to that is always, well, <laughs> look more closely at lots of really old hymn books. You'll find they're full of garbage. Yes. People write bad music at roughly the same rate throughout history, as far as I can make out. Yes. It's just that most of the stuff from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, and even some from the 19th century that was really terrible, has been weeded out so that only the good stuff remains. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you buy a hymn book or a song book, because it probably would be a song book, let's, right. let's face it, that it contains only songs written in the last 20 years, the filter of history hasn't done its job. So all the garbage is mixed in there with, with a bunch of stuff. There might be half a dozen really good tunes, really good songs, mm-hmm. great words, but there's also going to be 500 things that you just want to... You're waiting for the history to roll on so we can forget that we have the same shine, Jesus shine, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. So okay, yeah. I'm with you. Um, and so the, um, and this is one of the things that intrigues me. And just as I'm talking to Christians who have adopted different approaches with their own kids, um, I'm very, very keen to encourage people not to get uptight about the labels so much. I think there is some value in, mm-hmm. in attempting to think about a coherent paradigm like a classical Christian paradigm. Right. But um, actually, what's, what's almost, I think I probably would say, more important is, look, let's not have an argument about classical Christian or some other Christian, but wouldn't it be great to read Augustine's Confession? Yes. Let's read that. Let's give that to a 12-year-old boy. Right. And just see the impact it could have on him. Yes. And ditto with so many other things. Get, get your children to listen to great music get your children to mm-hmm. um appreciate learn to appreciate great art even if they don't particularly enjoy looking at it or can't paint and draw and so on themselves right. they can they can appreciate great sculpture and painting and so on absolutely yeah. and so if we work backwards the argument then would be in order to achieve virtuous children mm-hmm. um in order which enriches your argument of yes. vocation right we need to Surround them and feed their souls good things yes, yes. so that their souls are changed yeah. for the better. Yeah. And that's potentially, potentially so powerful. If you think about what, what are you really looking for, if, if you're asking for a recommendation for somebody to service your car mm-hmm. or to install a new roof or to install an irrigation system or do some work that you don't understand on your house, you want two things. You want competence and you want honesty. Or, or character more broadly. And so the competence and character, maybe, I, I don't think you should try and do so now, but I wonder if that's a helpful analytical framework for, for thinking about vocational training, mm-hmm. competence and character. So the, the classical element is one particularly 
focused route towards the character point. Yes, definitely. Okay. You had some other things you wanted to say, just to, to like, what I don't know, nuance. I've not detected any disagreement yet, but no. uh, but go ahead if you do. But uh, to, to in response to my previous podcast a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, you had some other thoughts you wanted to feed in. Yeah, sure. So I think to fine-tune your argument even more, which yeah. I think is 100% valid, it is important to distinguish the type of classical education it's directed towards. Right, so right. we've spent a bit of time here um, discussing what classical education is, the purpose of it, what it mm -hmm. consists of. The episode you did with Mr. Taylor recently on the progression of maturity and priest-king prophet was another great example of that. Um, now, to fine-tune your argument even more, I think we need to distinguish the vocational component and um, where... It should where parents and people should be considering that more in what stage of life. So obviously you're not directing your vocational argument to 12-year-olds, right? Right. 12-year-olds, like in this discussion, they still have a lot of growth and maturity, wisdom, mm -hmm. and virtue that needs to that needs to occur. And in addition right. to that, if they want to start their own lawn mowing business, they need to actually be good at math, right? Right. So we're not, <laughs> or at least better at math than some twelve-year-olds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the our argument obviously is not addressed to twelve-year-olds. I think it would be a much more effective argument if we we're talking about right, education right. at the college level. Right. Okay. So um, obviously, people in high school, vocational training could start to enter the picture. They can actually uh, legally work um, in mm -hmm. many cases, mm -hmm. but. Um, obviously, a lot of educational groundwork is being laid, but once they're done with high school, then I think your argument for vocational training really can start to take off. Right, right. And so it's important, I think, to distinguish that uh, collegiate level education mm. and the purpose of it is really important versus yeah. high school, junior high, right. kindergarten, younger grades. So, so at this point, I think it's interesting because there is something... It's not 100% arbitrary. I don't, I, want, I don't want to say it's arbitrary. Mm -hmm. But there is something somewhat arbitrary about making an absolute claim you know, that your vocational education or your specifically focused vocational training, competence in plumbing, competence as an engineer, competence as a doctor, competence as an accountant, shouldn't begin until you are post-college, 21, or sure. post-high school, 18, or yep. maybe 16. It, it feels to me it's there, there isn't a hard line that I'd want to apply to everybody. Right. Um, Everyone's different. Right. And so part of what we want to do then is to acknowledge that we need to be ready to respond to different students with different character, temperament, ambitions, um, academic abilities and so on, and you can easily see what what that might the outcome of that might be. For, so somebody who's just not very academic, but really, really, really wants to be um, a, a craftsman right. or a, in the skilled trades, and is already really good at it, age sixteen or seventeen. Mm -hmm. You might make a case then for saying, well, let's try and get some vocational training, high quality vocational training, if their character is ready for that earlier. Whereas somebody of a more academic bent, what would you say? Would you would you want to encourage people who are more academically minded to continue classical 
Christian education, liberal arts training into a tertiary level, or, or, or do you not want to make that generalization? I probably would not want to make that generalization just because it could get so tricky with regards to what the uh, child in question wants to do. Right. So right. I have a child who's certainly not academically focused, we can already tell, and so my mm -hmm. wife and I are already having discussions about what's the best way yeah, to set yeah, him yeah. up for hands-on, like, craft, tradesman-type jobs. Great, great, yeah. At the same time, we want to give him the quality of education yes, now yes. where we don't feel like he needs to go for a tertiary uh, education and have additional mm -hmm. classical um, right, right. as part of that. For other children, it could, obviously could vary. I certainly would recommend it if they wanted to have a career in uh, classical education. Yes, But yes. it... It does come to a point where I would say you maybe do not need to pursue it. Yeah. Why would you keep going? Why would you keep going so, so, when you've already had, one would hope, yes. a very solid level of right. that type of education? So, so here's what, it's interesting. I, I've had a number of conversations with um, very experienced educators in uh, the, the college level in the liberal arts. Who I, who I respect immensely, mm -hmm. who've, who've said, and I'll, I'll try and paraphrase in this, like... Um, the best argument that I've heard from them is we're all in favour of vocational education, mm -hmm. but not for an 18-year-old right. because there is still too much they haven't yet done. They need three, four years more. They'll benefit so much from um, a liberal arts degree. Mm -hmm. And we all know that there are multiple institutions now in the US, and there's some that we know well, um, New St. Andrews in Moscow, um, people at All Saints have been to Hillsdale, and at least one person has been to Hillsdale. Um, Anthony Esselin, in his, in his uh, book that we read, I forget the Out of the Ashes. Out of the Ashes, yeah, we read this uh, part of a book group a couple of years ago, lists a whole bunch of liberal arts colleges, Protestant, Catholic, uh, all across the US, right. that are in different ways rediscovering the, the liberal arts degree tradition. And some of them have been around for many decades. Mm -hmm. So, my friends would say, Give your budding accountant, your budding engineer, your budding airline pilot, whatever it is, get them through a liberal arts education all the way to 21 mm -hmm. and then go to trade school or then go to do a degree in engineering or then go to train with American Airlines and then go to train as an accountant. Right. And I, your, your suggestion is that's a generalization too far. Uh, I definitely would say that. Of course, it depends, again, on the person in right. question, okay. their maturity level. Um, I certainly, so I went to one of the schools you mentioned previously, um, and it certainly benefited me. Right, right, I right. got a lot out of it. I needed that, and so yes. I'm very thankful for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, it can be very redundant. Um, you can tell us which which school you went to. Yeah, so I went to, <laughs> yeah, I went to, so I went to New St. Andrews yeah, College, yeah. and we have like four or five people now. That are all in there. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, here yeah, at all yeah, that's um, but at the same time, I, so my wife went there too, and yeah, certainly yeah. she thought a lot of it was redundant and right. she did have a pretty thorough classical education right. as she okay. was growing okay. up. Um, so I definitely would push back against the redundancy component of it. It may not be necessary at all for some people and they can go straight to those right, 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 vocations right. that they want right. to pursue. It comes down to the maturity level of that person, of course. Mm -hmm. So I have several siblings that have gone to secular 
quote-unquote schools. Yes, yes. And they're active church members and providing for their families and doing a yeah. magnificent job. Yeah. And they didn't have that liberal arts education. Right. So I, I think this is fascinating because it, it raises in my mind a bunch of questions. and Well, observations, really. And so um, if I'm, I don't know, go from one at a time and you tell me what you think. And the first is, um, there's just a financial aspect to this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if... <laughs> If you're planning to, let's say, train as an engineer, you're not going to train to be an engineer at a Christian liberal arts university. You're going to have to go to a um, somewhere else, which yes. means that you're you're saying, okay, well, I'll go to a liberal arts school, and that's basically an extra three years or four years not earning plus the fees and costs mm-hmm. and so on. Yes. So if cost were no object mm-hmm. and you weren't in a rush, I right. would say, well, go for it. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Like, but but the problem is there's n- there's no free lunch. There's no trade-off free decisions every decision you make to do one thing is a decision not to do something else every dime you spend on one thing you're not spending on something else and you're certainly if you're spending money on education you're not earning money and saving money and it seems to me unfortunate when it's almost like it would be possible to overstate the case for anything by ignoring its downsides yes and classical education and christian education generally are such blessings, we don't need to overstate the case for them by pretending there's no downside. Even right. if it's good value, it still costs time and money. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thought. Um, that And that's the exact same right. uh, thought I have right. too. So it's if you're married or about to be married and you expect to have children pretty right. quick. You probably need to earn some money, yes. not spend some. Rather than go into another five, six, seven, eight right. years of right. school. And obviously some people do do that. And they can make it work. Right. It's a right. very hard five, six, seven, eight years. Right. Yeah. Um, so and, and again, that will depend on circumstances. And, and yes. So, and a related point, and this is the second observation I wanted to make, is I almost I want to push back by saying, the case for classical Christian education up to twenty one, is not that it's claiming too much; it's claiming too little. I want people to be reading great books yes. and growing in character in a way that reflects the whole biblical saturated Christian tradition that we're a part of right. until they are 95 or 114 or however old they, however long they live. Right. I don't want us to think uh, we should do the classical educa- education up to 21 and then we've got it done. And I know that the best classical educators don't think that. Right. But given that you've got to stop somewhere, what I'd love to see is uh, a disposition towards... Uh, a love of learning mm-hmm. and a love of scripture right. and a love of great theology and art and music and everything else that permeates adult life and then that will seep down into the children. Absolutely. I was I was reading just recently, in fact I've got it over there, I, I won't grab it because I'll, I'll leave the microphone and make a noise, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt, president early 20th century, wrote a letter to a friend of his, a Nobel laureate, mm-hmm. I forget the guy's name, in response to a question about what he's reading. And he's, he wrote this list of like a hundred books right. that he had read, read or reread in the first two years of his presidency, between 1901 and 1903, I think. And it was just Greek classics, and it was massive multi-volume histories of the ancient world and biographies of kings and queens you'd never heard of, and great literature, along with a bunch of novels that he thought were too ephemeral to mention and right. embarrassing. To, and I just thought, there's a man who is... I mean, it's not like he's got nothing to do, President of the United States. Right. But he's somehow 
been gripped by a, a love for lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I so want to encourage that in all the parents because that will filter down to the children, right? Certainly, and that's something that I try to encourage among my friends, parents specifically, who are who have children enrolled in a classical mm-hmm. school, as well as encourage the parents, particularly the dads here at the Oaks, where it's very important that the classical education they're giving in children does not just take place down the halls here, right, right, right. but at home. Yes, and yes, then yes. to a lesser extent, I mean, not to a lesser extent. Um, I downplay this more, but right. in these um, with these in these conversations, but it needs to be taking place at these parents' churches as well. Right, right, right. But at home, as an example, um, so we I, I collect vinyl records. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yes. Um, you're a whiskey drinker and you collect vinyl records I like you more all the time mate. <laughs> you're welcome to come anytime and uh, share in those experiences so the whole uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was to show first off children look this is music and it's on this vinyl black disc mm. and it's not in this magical ethereal world yes. where you push a button and then and it comes on the speaker and yeah, it's yeah. there and you have access to everything right so in a sense it helps ground them Yes, but also, and sure, I have a lot of the classics. I was able to find an original pressing of Fleetwood Mac's Rumors um, a couple <laughs> weeks ago, and I was very pumped about that. But I have a big collection of Handel's Messiah, Saint Matthew's Passion. Right, right, right. Uh, for Columbus Day, we were listening to Dvorak's The New World. Hmm. So right, right. it's that's just one example of one way you can share and the classical experience and give it to your children at home. But it's not just doing it for your children. I'm being right. shaped by exactly. this myself. Sure. Leah is being shaped by it. You can't pass it. on what you are not yourself. In it, that way. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm not just doing it for them. I'm still being shaped by these things. Last year, Leah and I went on a Shakespeare binge and probably we didn't read, but we watched maybe 14 different Shakespeare film adaptations. Mm. Wow. Um, and it's Did you watch um, Henry V, the um, the one with, um, who's the guy who plays Lockhart in um, Harry Potter? The English oh, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Yes. So we watched three different versions of Henry V. Oh, and then wow. we watched three different versions of Hamlet. And he's like 28 years old or something when he does that yes. speech. He's amazing, it, isn't he? <laughs> he is. It's greatness. Um, yeah. So, but that's equally important for parents, too. It doesn't stop. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the... Um, Robert Farrar Capon's The uh, Supper of the Lamb, his book, yes. so book. good on book, yeah. talking about this um, yes. element of enriching your home yes. and yes. being very intentional with the things that you are surrounded by, listening to, reading to, your, or in his case, since it's mm. uh, particularly focused on gastronomy, what you're eating and actually yes. consuming yeah. and tasting. Yeah. Those things, again, it goes back to soul changing mm-hmm. soul improvement feeding your soul in some cases literally yes where it, you were becoming a better person of it so it never stops yes yeah, is okay. the point like you just that's got up it, so so sorry cutting you off I didn't mean no. to, okay so so what you're i think again we're in agreement and what you've got is it always makes me laugh Whenever you, anybody mentions um, Capon's book now, that I always think of the Onion. Yes, and and I talked to um, Pastor Josh Apple, who's at Trinity Reformed Church in Moscow, mm-hmm. who teaches a course in what he calls is it aesthetic gastronomy. I was one of his students. Yes. Right, and and he's just 
Oh, if you ever get a chance to listen to Josh, anybody listening to this, whoever has a chance to go and hear Josh preach or go and study under him, if you can, he's just just a wonderful, wonderful teacher, Please pastor, do. preacher, yes. everything. Mm-hmm. And um, he, but he has such a, a kind of incendiary love for the things that God has made and for the privilege of teaching them. It's just, and it sets adults on fire with love for those things, just as it does, I'm, I'm sure, his students. Certainly. Um, Yes, right. and you can definitely, yeah, just if we, we want to sing praises of Josh Apple. Yeah, yeah, we love you, Josh. Just YouTube him. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's so much gold, Jerry. There's gold. Well, let, let me just, because um, we've got, I want to take a few more minutes. Can I take a few more minutes from you? Because mm-hmm. I, I want to pick up a, a potential objection, which um, Nicole, my wife, and I have been sensitive to in uh, thinking about our own kids. Um, so we have... Most of you know this. Uh, our son Ben is eighteen, pushing nineteen. He just started college. We've got two daughters who are looking in that direction. And one of the things that we were acutely sensitive to is the obvious point, which is made by many in the tertiary classical Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. But frankly, some universities are not a great place to go to get your worldview shaped. Right. So, um, what I, I do think again, I, the the best way to to make the case for some people going to a secular university to study math or physics or engineering or something is not to try and overstate it. I think as a father whose son has taken that route, I want to concede, yes, there are many, many places where it would be an absolute unmitigated catastrophe for some Christian young people to go to study anything, STEM, history, English. Um, Many Secular universities are so contaminated with un- un-Christian ideologies that especially in the humanities, but increasingly in some science disciplines and engineering and so on, right. you're, you're getting indoctrinated with all kinds of garbage that you are no, in no position for some young people, some young people are in no position to filter out. Right. And frankly, even some professedly Christian institutions are worryingly... Um, heading leftward or wokeward in all kinds of different areas. So I, I want to wear that response. You know, I, I don't think we serve ourselves, and we certainly don't serve our young people well by minimizing the potential dangers. I think, to put it most simply, it would be a good idea not to go to certain schools to, st- to study certain subjects. I don't think it follows from that that it's a bad idea to go to any so professedly non-Christian university to study anything at any age. I think it's just right. that wisdom and discernment. Absolutely. Um, now, it sounds from what you're saying like w- within your way of articulating the goals and aims of Christian education and classical Christian education, mm-hmm. I think I'm in sympathy with, very strong sympathy with. There's space for that. Um, you'd want to, to hear those cautions. Um but you don't think the cautions rule out the whole kind of pursuit of learning in secular institutions, correct? Correct, yes. And so I think it's important to, that's why I wanted to draw this distinction. Right, right. I don't think the argument about the focus on vocational training is a hidden danger in that it is juxtaposed against the younger grades. It's obviously much more... the older stages. Right, it's until you get to the older stages. And like you said, exactly, wisdom and discernment are critical when making those decisions Um, because if if a parent and a student are confident that um, 
a potential college mm-hmm. applicant is wise enough to yeah. discern yeah. and shun what some secular universities yeah. Yeah. will yeah. be offering yeah. them. And then in turn, they can get a good start on the vocation they want right. to pursue. Right. Then they can do it. Then yeah. they can go do it. But obviously, it's a case-by-case. Yes. And basis. I think wise parents know this. I, I, I think of two, two different sorts of conversations I have. Some with um, parents who say, you know, at what age is it okay for a child to be exposed to such and such a... A secular influence, right? Or what age is it okay for them to go to a secular uh, baseball club? Or what age is it okay for them to go join a secular orchestra or go to a secular educational institution? And I want to say there's no age, right? It's it's a whole bunch of different factors which include the character and stability and maturity and wisdom of the person, which is not perfectly correlated with their age, right? No, it's not. I mean, you talked yeah. about it in your episode with Mr. Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not everyone is going to reach their keen. The, their king stage right. at the same time or same age. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and that then fits the other kind of conversation I have with parents where they say, yeah, we, um, our, I don't know, son was definitely mature enough to go to such and such a place age 18, but we thought his little brother right. probably wasn't ready. And I think that's very wise. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's no one age fits all uh, for those kinds of decisions. Exactly. So, and, but it uh, should be made, I think, very clear that there should, if the mature level of maturity is there to go to the secular university, right, right. there shouldn't be any stigmatization of right. that I, I, student. Well, again, and this is a point where, yes, it's possible that different people might reach different conclusions about, well, is this person quite ready yet? I mean, that's part of what being a parent is. Yes. You've got to take responsibility for that. The young person has got to take responsibility. People might differ in where they draw the fuzzy line, Mm-hmm. But it would be a mistake to say there should be no line. Right. right. Absolutely. I, I guess, so just one more thing I wanted to raise with you, which is related to this whole set of questions, but is somewhat distinct. We're ignoring in all of this the, the issue of just raw educational quality. The simple fact is, and, and in some disciplines, it is possible to almost quantify competence, certainly in um, mathematics and in some of the sciences, um, but also in terms of, uh, it, it might not be possible to quantify it so much, but um, it's possible to, to analyse a play superficially or to analyse it more deeply. It's possible to, to draw badly and play a musical instrument badly or play it rather better. And you might not be able to attach numbers, numerical strength to those competences, but Across the whole field of educating young people, one of the things that we ought to be concerned about, uh, as an aspect of character, actually, not uh, um, alongside character, but as part of character, is just how good somebody is. <laughs> like, are, they, are, they, are they good at math? Mm-hmm. Because it would be a really bad idea to, to not care about that. Um, and I, I know in some sense it's, you can distinguish academic and educational competence from character. It's possible to have a highly godly character and not be academically trained to a high level that's of course that's possible but neither should we um totally detach those things so it's so i want to say to all the young people you should be working as hard as you can to get as good as you can at your subjects and it's no answer to say yeah but i can be a godly person without being good at math so no you just blew your cover right there right go and do your math homework um so I guess the, the question I have is something like this. Given that 
quality, just educational competence, is one of the things we should be concerned about. Do you think that the classical Christian tradition distinctively has something to offer here? I mean, I, obviously, it's possible to get really good in all kinds of different traditions. I'm not asking you to 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 criticise other traditions. I'm just trying to say, what do you think the tradition that you're most familiar with mm-hmm. has to offer? Sure. So, the it's certainly some advantages of the classical education in this type of format is the it's very hard to do with just parents by yourself. So uh, right. if you can do it in community, especially in a structured environment with the school, um, where then you can be have your children shaped by your teachers that are experts in their fields, that's going to have a much greater impact and be much more effective at delivering that right. particular um, curriculum to the students. So, for example, if I want my children to take Bible and theology, I could do it myself. Uh, that'd be great <laughs> or I could have them take it from you right and the so that's you to say. Yeah, so there's that's a and this gets at a different component of classical education um, and that is the teacher so you want to have the kinds of teachers that you are shaping your students as well you don't want just the uh, fact that they're reading Augustine and listening to Bach, mm. you don't want those. You want those things to shape your students, but mm. you want to have the quality of teachers where the right. teachers yeah. are shaping the students as well. Right. Right. Um, and and so in that sense, you want the mm-hmm. quality is extremely important. Um, yeah. The um, the teach the what the students are learning is only yeah. as good as the teacher delivering it yes, yeah, at the yeah, end of yeah, the day. Yeah, I'm with you. So I think I mean, what's interesting about that is it raises this whole issue, which I don't think we should try and talk about today. Maybe it's a topic for another podcast, where we, I'd like to try and help parents, especially parents of younger children, and we have loads of parents of younger children, mm-hmm. kids who haven't really started their formal yeah. education yet. I'd like to help them to think through the pros and cons of different approaches. Right. And clearly... There is a range of different approaches, homeschooling, different brands of homeschooling, different brands of Christian co-ops and classical conversations and then classical schools and then the the university model schools that I know you're most familiar with and you're involved in here at the Oaks Tutorials that uses a building here at All Saints. There's a whole bunch of different paradigms. And what sometimes happens is people get really defensive because they think that anybody who talks about something that they're not doing is actually criticising them. Right. Now, I don't want to... Absolutely not wanting to do that. Um, and I think maybe what we want to do at some point, not now, stop it, Pastor Jeffrey, is um, is to have a conversation where we're talking about what are the pros and cons. And let's, and let's just be honest about it mm-hmm. and, and not, not feel defensive or criticised. And I think it is interesting to me that the comments you made, they were really speaking in favour of some form of collaboration or community. Yes. Rather than specifically classical, I mean, right? Uh, we tried to do mostly on our own something approaching a kind of classical framework, and some people would say it wasn't classical because you didn't do Latin, you did Greek. Okay, yeah. fine, whatever. I mean, I, 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 we didn't, and so if that doesn't tick your box, that's fine. Right. But we tried to do something, but we were doing it on our own, and one of the problems we ran into was, well, how do we push the kids? And one of the ways you can do it is just by pushing them yourself. But it's really hard work. Yes. And there is a kind of healthy com- competitiveness. And um, there's a blessing, like you said, in having uh, m- people who are more specialist mm-hmm. teaching. 
one of the best experiences we had was when we first started, when we just set up an informal co-op with a number of other families. And right. it, it had its challenges. It had its downsides. Sure. You've got to slow down for the young people who are slower at math. Mm-hmm. And Nicole, my wife, who taught a lot of math in that context, slowed down a lot. Right. But the, the students got the benefit of, she's a very, very good math teacher. She had a degree in engineering from Oxford. She's, she's good at math, okay? Yeah. And, and also they get the benefit of being together, which has all those character benefits, as well as, you know, the healthy competitiveness between the students. And they right. think, I, there, there is something valuable in that, you know? Definitely. And, and, I, and I've gone, sorry. Yeah, so, and so God made us to be social right. and to right. be right. in community. That's why we worship together yeah, yeah, yeah. and that doesn't stop on Sundays we yes, are yeah. we are he has sent us out and placed us in the world mm-hmm. uh, to be lights and need to be with other people in order to do that yeah, and yeah. in order to be iron that is sharpened you need to be with another piece of iron right, right yeah. so doing it in community is really important um, music singing is very important um, for us obviously as Christians yes, in our worship. Yes. And it's it's not the same when you're yeah, doing a it bunch of things you by yourself do, in your house. You can do together that you can't do alone. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, I I'm, I I want to press pause because otherwise we're going to chase down there for another hour or more. And you've got things to do. I've got things to do. And we've been going for 45, 50 minutes. So we should press pause. Um, I'm very grateful to you for um, these comments that you've raised. And I think it's... It has sharpened what I started talking about before. It's added depth and texture and helped us to explore in a few different directions. So thank you for that. I want to say two other things. In a second, I'll ask if there's anything you want to add just in closing. But before I say that, to the listeners, um, hope this has been helpful to you. And uh, if it has raised particular questions which you think could helpfully be addressed either just pastorally, by Pastor Neil or me or in, at All Saints, or in a podcast like this, don't hesitate to get in touch. It's always a pleasure to hear from people. And I think we might well come back and address this um, homeschooling versus different kinds of schools question, because I think that's something that a lot of young families at All Saints might benefit from. So um, if that's you, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Um, Nate, thank you for being here. Anything finally you want to just leave with us, leave oh, us with? Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's a Great. good discussion and appreciate your uh, work and uh, thoughtfulness on these, uh, on these topics. Right, well, um, Trying to push back the frontiers of ignorance, as my old um, PhD supervisor used to say. (laughs) Sounds great. um, All right. um, Well, listen, uh, thank you, Nate. Um, To the listeners, thank you all. I hope you've found this helpful. And um, I think uh, that's all from us. God bless. And bye for now.